Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I am the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer is Twy Turn Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, guys, uh, before we start the show today, I just wanted to mention that there seems to be a problem with iTunes or maybe it's Podbean, which is the uh, the server that we use for the podcast. Um, for some folks out there, including some of the people on this very podcast, uh, if you go to Slash Film Daily in whatever podcast feed you're using, uh, Apple Podcasts is one that several of us use, it looks like the only episode of the entire run of this whole podcast that is available is yesterday's episode for some reason. So we have sent out emails to the you know uh, IT staff of those places and are trying to figure out what's going on. If you're affected by this, we apologize. Um, but we are aware of this issue and are uh, hoping, hoping that it gets resolved soon. So um, I just wanted to we, let people know about we, that in case. We should say that if... Um... If you happen to have the podcast like listed in your library already, like if you were subscribed to or something before that, that if you go to our page from there, it looks like all the episodes are showing up that way. But if you go to the page from searching for the podcast, it's not showing all the rest of the episodes. So it seems like there's a workaround, which makes us think there's a weird glitch somewhere. Yeah, definitely some weirdness going on. Um, okay, so let's dive into the news. I also should mention we're going to uh, jump into the mailbag at the end of this episode. I forgot to mention that. So um, look forward to that. But uh, before we get to the mailbag stuff, let's talk about some news things that happened. Uh, Brad, we have learned finally, blissfully, the title of Spider-Man 3. We no longer have to refer to that movie as Spider-Man 3. What is the title of the newest upcoming Spider-Man movie? Brad, before you start, can I complain about this real fast? <laughs> oh, of before course. You, yeah, before you get I'm, to big news? I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure you have the same complaint that we all have. <laughs> <laughs> because last night, I was working a little bit late, 15, 20 minutes later than I usually do, and suddenly Tom Holland, Jacob Badalon, and Zendaya start dropping fake titles for Spider-Man 3. Uh, Spider-Man Home Slice, Spider-Man Phone Home, Spider-Man Home Wrecker. And I didn't want to call the crew back to work. So here I am, staying up hours past 
my time to sign off, putting off making dinner, putting off watching TV, putting off being a human, because I'm constantly refreshing the damn internet, trying to figure out when the actual title will be revealed, thinking it would be that night. So this little cute, coy, little, oh, we're doing a bunch of fake titles, isn't it cute things? This social media thing, all the young hip stars thought was fun. Screw you, it wasn't fun, it ruined my night. Screw you, Tom Holland, you lying little bastard. Okay, that's it. Brad, what's, what's the actual title? <laughs> So the actual title is Spider-Man No Way Home. Ta-da! Was that worth wow. the effort? Was that worth, the effort? <laughs> was that worth everything <laughs> they put me through? Yeah, this whole thing stunk <laughs> to high heaven. And it, it you know, none of the fake titles were even funny. Like, come on, Holmes, like get the fuck out of here. Just, <laughs> just shut up, Spider-Man 3. I'm already sick I, of I, you and I haven't seen a single <laughs> frame of your film. I will say I think I think that we're we're probably more bitter than we otherwise would be based on the position that we're in of having to try and figure out what was going on because after Tom Holland you know put this out there everyone was like oh the title is phone home and everyone's tweeting and going crazy and then it's like oh it's just a stupid gag so yeah it's it's I think that you know obviously other people were having fun with it but for us we're just in the unique situation where it just it bothers us <laughs> I just feel like this entire episode illustrates how pointless titles for any of these movies are because like, this seems like a huge marketing no, no, like let's put out fake titles, but they realize it doesn't matter. Cause when you go to buy a ticket, you're just going to say Spider-Man, give me a ticket for Spider-Man. And it's just, it just illustrates how pointless all of this is and how cold and useless the universe is. Anyway, let's move on. But, but Brad, <laughs> if you rearrange the words in uh, no way home, you get the villain of the movie. No, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that was, um, man, uh, Jacob, I feel for you. Uh, I, I missed that entire episode last night. Um, My cat's I, mad too, by the way. Yeah. I, uh, I feel bad that you had to deal with that. I mean, it's, it's just oh. so stupid and it's like, it's my job. Really... That's the thing, Ben. It's my job. It's my job to make sure that stuff gets up on the site, whether I'm, I'm coordinating you guys or whether I'm doing it myself in a situation like last night where I was on hand. I just wish that it was in service of a funny gag or something that paid off. Right. It was just a bunch of bullshit. And it yeah. made me really mad. Cause like, you know, it's like, yes, I, I work for my computer. Yes. I work from home, but you know what? When my wife is done with work after, and it's, and it's seven o'clock at night and I'm still hitting refresh on Zendaya's Instagram page, like some maniac, something's gone wrong with my career. Something's gone wrong with my life. Something's gone wrong with your entire social media game. Jacob, <laughs> if it makes you feel better, I, kept refreshing john watts's instagram last night to get it before for you because i thought that's where it was going to be posted and my wife and i were watching tv and i just kept looking at my phone like an asshole because i was like i gotta i gotta keep an eye out for this spider-man title which didn't even come last night which makes it even more worthless thanks a lot spider-man i'll talk about on the podcast when when i'm ready to in the future but after a week of being in survival mode during the texas snowstorm like every single day felt worse than the previous one and every day was like an adrenaline rush of badness um this put me in, in such a foul mood of like I can't not even not even Spider-Man is letting my like bad adrenaline go down. It's here, it's back. Like what's going to go what's going to happen next? Spider-Man snowstorms? I I don't know. Uh it's been a real rough time. And, and Zendaya, Tom Holland, Jacob Battleon, Marvel, Sony, you just made me hate have an even worse time than I should have over this. And I hate all of you. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I I hope that uh those studios don't um see all of the fuss that was made over this and 
you know, get any ideas of like, oh, we should announce every superhero movie title this way because that would just be a disaster. And I feel like we would don't just you like fucking dare. Don't <laughs> I even feel like my ideas. I feel like we should just say right now that we're just going to opt out of that whole thing. So like, we will not give you the coverage that you desire if you <laughs> decide to do that. So anyway, um, Brad, I guess just, uh, you know, putting all of the metatextual stuff aside, what do you think about that title? Uh, no Way Home. Uh, I mean, it's. I don't think it's as good as the other title that a lot of people were hoping it would be, which was No Place Like Home, uh, which feels a little more charming, um, has some whimsy to it. But this, the title still does hint at, uh, you know, the idea that Spider-Man will be very much out of place uh, in this sequel, as we saw in the mid-credit sequence in Far From Home. Uh, Peter Parker's secret identity as Spider-Man was revealed, and so that will likely have him on the run, uh, possibly as a fugitive, since Mysterio. Uh, had him take the the fall for some of the uh, events that happened in the climax of that movie. And so I feel it'll be a thing where, you know, Peter Parker is very much not able to uh, be at home or have a home because he'll be, he'll be on the run. And it uh, may also have some reference to what we're um, we've heard will likely involve Spider-Man uh, and the multiverse, whether it's him potentially getting lost in the multiverse or trying to, find a different place to hide out uh, because he's wanted in the, uh, the current Marvel cinematic universe that remains to be seen, but uh, yeah, clearly it hints at some trouble for Spider-Man. Okay. Let's move to our next story, which is the next movie from David Fincher. This is kind of exciting news. Chris, tell us about that. So David Fincher uh, hadn't made a feature film in six years before Mank came out late last year. Uh, but thankfully he's not going to, wait another six years for his next film because he can't because he signed an exclusive four year deal with Netflix to make new movies. And it looks like he's already has, he already has a new one lined up that is expected to start shooting this fall. And it's called the killer. Uh, this is actually something Fincher has been attached to since 2007. He was originally going to make it uh, with Paramount, but now it's over at Netflix um, it's going to reunite him with Andrew Kevin Walker, who, of course, wrote uh, Seven. And uh, Michael Fassbender is in talks to star. And if he signs the contract, he'll be playing an assassin who just slowly starts losing his mind. And uh, the film is based on a French graphic novel of the same name. So there you have it. Yeah, man, that sounds pretty cool. Jacob, do you have any thoughts about uh, the especially the pairing of uh, Fincher and Fassbender? This is uh, terrific news. I think this is uh, Fassbender is a kind of he feels custom made to slide into David Fincher's uh, universe of films where where people are made to suffer and nobody suffers on screen like Fassbender. I'm glad he's working so fast again. I mean, six years is a long time uh, between movies, and the turnaround on this is great. I hope Netflix is giving Fincher the the energy and resources he he, he wants to be able to turn things around fast like this because. Man, I was just watching Girls Dragon Tattoo again a few nights ago. We rules and Fincher rules when he's in dark places, and I'm ready for this. HC, what do you think about this? Are you excited about the idea of uh, of the of Fincher reuniting with the writer of Seven and, and teaming up with Michael Fassbender for a project? Yeah, this has all the makings of a great Fincher project, and I agree with Jacob. I think Michael Fassbender uh, is suffers so well on screen, and I feel like he has sometimes been well served by directors and sometimes less so but Fincher just seems like a a, a director that would uh, do right by Michael Fassbender and I, I I don't know how to describe his particular charm but it's kind of this almost unnerving type of 
handsomeness to him that I think would mm-hmm. do well in a, a Fincher movie. Yeah, I, I like the way you put that. Um, okay, so just a, a couple more uh, cool Netflix projects. Chris, um, you'd want to just like give us the basics of these two projects. I just kind of wanted to put these on people's radar. We don't have to necessarily go in depth on either one of these, but I, I read the synopses of both of these and was like, ah, that sounds cool. So um, I just wanted to, yeah, spread the word to, to our listeners. Uh, yeah, sure. One is The Bluff. And it is a pirate movie that's going to star Zoe Zaldana, which is kind of interesting because she was actually in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And then she didn't return for the sequels. And she said since that she had a a bad time making that movie. But now she's getting her own pirate movie. And this is headed to Netflix. And it's going to be produced by the Russo brothers. So there's that. And then the other one is Gordon Hemingway and the Realm of Cthulhu, which is going to be directed by Stefan Bristol and produced by Spike Lee. And this is a a movie that's set in East Africa in 1928 and follows a roguish black American gunslinger who teams up with the elite warrior princess Zanebe. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I'm sorry. Of Ethiopia to rescue their kidnapped regent from an ancient evil. And uh, a bunch of people reported this news yesterday and none of them mentioned that it might have something to do with H.P. Lovecraft, who of course kind of you know, gave birth to Cthulhu. So I don't know what the connection is going to be to that. If they're just using the name or not, but it's, it stands to reason that it's going to have some sort of connection to Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Um, Chris, you've read a handful of those books, right? Or you're like familiar with. Yes. I haven't read read, like all of them, obviously, but I've read uh, a bunch of them. Yeah. So this, this Gordon Hemingway character is not a character who has popped up. in Lovecraft's. Okay. Gotcha. Um, Jacob, do you know anything about this at all? Have you, uh, I mean, I, I know you're also like a, uh, you know, a member of the cult of Cthulhu, so yeah. to speak. For better or worse, I've read every single thing H. Lovecraft's ever written. Uh, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the racist stuff. <laughs> um, and the thing here is these are black filmmakers making a adventure movie that specifically says it stars, you know, black leads and has Cthulhu in the title. And as Lovecraft Country did on HBO last year, there's been a movement to reclaim the realm of like, you know, old school weird fiction for all people. And it's been happening, you know, for decades, ever since I'd argue that the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game was the first step in this, because it let people work in this really cool, terrifying world, uh, but, like, inject themselves into it and ignore the the tone-deaf, racist, anti-Semitic stuff that sometimes pops up in Lovecraft's work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is a really cool idea on two fronts. One, it's clearly Spike Lee and this filmmaker saying, what if a black Indiana Jones, you know, awesome, and two... Uh, another step in the reclaiming of, you know, popular weird fiction for people who aren't white supremacists. So I think this sounds super cool and promising. Awesome. All right. Uh, So our last uh, news story involves uh, some Disney Plus release dates and uh, people can, you know, click on the the link in the show notes and get all the specifics there. But uh, HT, since you wrote this up, I just wonder if any particular dates for any of these projects um, stood out to you or well, not the dates specifically, but if any of these projects, uh, you know, that you're looking forward to, um, if you just want to like tell people when they can, you know, pencil something in on their calendars for a couple of these big shows. Yeah. So at today's Television Critics Association Winter Press Tour, Disney announced a slew of Disney Plus release dates, including that for Loki, uh, the new Marvel Disney Plus title, which would 
be premiering on Disney Plus on June 11th, two months after Falcon and the Winter Soldier wraps up its six-episode run. So there's quite a gap there. Um, but Kevin Feige, who also did a Q&A at the TCAs, uh, announced that the animated series What If will also follow Loki at a still un- undisclosed date. And that um, Hawkeye is currently shooting while and while She-Hulk and Moon Knight will begin production soon. Um, on the... Star Wars side of things, there is Star Wars The Bad Batch, which will premiere on Disney Plus on May 4th. And um, that's one of the earliest sort of big releases following Falcon, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So that's probably going to be uh, another big one for Disney. And then uh, Pixar is starting to get in on the Disney Plus trend um, with a monster, the Monsters, Inc. spinoff, Monsters at Work, uh, releasing on July 2nd. So uh, yeah, there's a couple of other things. High School Musical, the musical, the series, comes back with the second season on May 14th. There's a couple of you know reboots like Turner and Hooch. So uh, you can check out the full list. And that's just for uh, spring through July. So we don't have like the entire Disney Plus slate for the year, but um, just for the next season, basically. So the one question I have, HT, is uh, because there's only, I think, one week in between the end of WandaVision and the beginning of um, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I think that one, the the, uh, the blank week, so to speak, in between those two is being filled with like a documentary series about the making of WandaVision. Do you think that What If, which you mentioned is still currently undated, is going to slide into that slot between the end of Falcon and the Winter Soldier and Loki. Like, so it's just constant Marvel stuff. Or do you think that that'll come after Loki? It's possible, but uh, Feige did say, I think that, Feige did say that uh, What If would come after Loki. But um, with that, yeah. But with that two two month gap, it seems like it would be prime to put another show in there. But uh, maybe a little, they just want to keep us wanting more. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. So let's jump into the mailbag, guys. We have three questions that I want to address here. Uh, The first one I think is going to be the most disappointing for the person who wrote in, which was Craig from Albany, New York, who said, if I can only watch a handful of Godzilla and or Kong movies in preparation for Godzilla versus Kong, which ones should I watch? And it turns out that none of us have like a super in-depth knowledge of the Godzilla and or King Kong movie universe, especially Godzilla. There's one more. They should watch Shin Godzilla. Which has nothing to oh, do with okay. this current franchise because it's the it's from Japan, but it's by far the best Godzilla movie I've ever seen. So, just gonna say yeah, and I mean, I guess that that applies. It's not necessarily just like, hey, rewatch these movies in you know within Legendary's MonsterVerse. So that that sounds like a, a good recommendation to me. Um, and that's not a movie that I think is like uh, super widely known on a like a fully mainstream basis. So maybe Craig hasn't seen that one yet. So that that would be uh, great. But Jacob, I think you had uh, something of an answer here. If it's not like even if, if it's not even though it's not directly answering this question. Yeah, I also ch- chime in that Shin Godzilla is exceptionally good and rules very hard as is in 1933 King Kong the original so that uh, but I'm no expert I'm no kaiju expert however we have a freelancer who is who's already pitched like weeks worth of Godzilla v Kong uh stories for the month of March and one of them could be a primer uh answering this question exactly so I'd say maybe tune back in a few weeks and maybe we'll have something for you all right stay tuned to slashfilm.com all right uh okay our second uh mailbag question comes from Brittany from OC California podcast listener here. I was wondering if you guys could do a segment highlighting slash suggesting movies or shows from black creators or highlighting black talent for black history month. 
So, um, I mean, this is like such a huge topic uh, where we could probably devote, you know, an entire week's worth of episodes to just this. So I feel like we're we're maybe doing it a little bit of a disservice just by sort of uh, listing off a handful of things. But hey, th- let's do it anyway. Let's just list off a handful of things each and uh, and see maybe we can, you know, put some of these projects in front of folks who, who haven't seen them yet. So um I'll kick things off and and recommend uh, Barry Jenkins if Beale Street could talk, which came out a few years ago, and I uh, it's just like a, such a beautiful, beautiful movie, and I feel like it's a movie that not a lot of people uh, talk about still, but really they should because it's just a gorgeous, gorgeously shot movie and a wonderful romance, and just um, man, the score of that that uh, film is uh, just like transportive in the best possible way. So if you've not seen If Beale Street Could Talk, definitely seek that one out. I would also suggest The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is another movie that came out around the same time, uh, 2019. Um, So relatively recently, it was directed by Joe Talbot, and it features a really unbelievably good supporting performance from Jonathan Majors, who starred in uh, Lovecraft Country, which came out on HBO earlier uh, last year. So if you uh, saw that show and and liked that actor and want to see him in more stuff, um, this relatively small indie movie, I think, is a, a great place to, um, to sort of go back and, and familiarize yourself with more of his work. And then um, When They See Us, which is... Uh, Ava DuVernay's uh, Netflix series, which came out, uh, geez, it's probably two or three years ago now at this point. Um, But man, what a super powerful, um, incredibly well put together story about the the Central Park Five and the just the uh, complete and utter bullshit that those guys had to go through. And man, it's just like, I mean, artfully done in the best way. Um, The performances are like unreal across the board. And uh, this is a show that I, I feel like because the subject matter is like a little tough to digest, it's not necessarily something that you want to throw on to like lighten the mood at the end of a long workday or something. But um, man, it's like, I feel like everybody would be better off just watching that show and, and everybody would be maybe become, you know, a few percentage points more compassionate as human beings for, for <laughs> after watching that. So it's called When They See Us. That's on Netflix if you want to check that out. Um, Chris, let's go to you. I feel I feel like this is like the most basic obvious answer and I'm sorry but I am a basic bitch and the answer <laughs> is anything Spike Lee has made like anything I like even when he makes a movie that isn't great it's it's still going to knock your socks off it's still going to make you be like wow this movie isn't that good but it's better than pretty much any other movie <laughs> he's just a, a an incredible talent and anytime I watch a movie by Spike Lee. I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this guy fucking knows what he's doing. <laughs> and that, that goes a long way. It, it, there are so many filmmakers out there and some of them are even successful who really just suck at their job. And so it's just amazing <laughs> to, to watch like a Spike Lee movie and see the way he plays around with form and the way he plays around with story and the, you know, the way he cuts in uh, archival clips of real things. It, you know, it's like a history lesson and entertainment all wrapped into one. It's just a, magnificent feat so again i'm sorry that answer is so basic but that that's my my answer yeah it's a great one uh brad how about you uh so one of the things i will start off with which is a movie that we have uh discussed fairly recently because it was um one of the buzzed about movies of 2020 and that's one night in miami uh it's directed by regina king and it's available on amazon prime now and it's based on a play of the same name that imagines this 
uh, fictionalized meeting of Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke uh, in 1964 when they all spent time uh, at this hotel after Muhammad Ali um, has a victory over Sonny Liston. And it's um, a very dialogue-heavy movie where these four you know, black icons are essentially talking, debating passionately um, about their place in culture, in the civil rights movement. And as these, you know, black men who have such large voices that people listen to, uh, what they should be doing to help further the movement and their responsibility and the difficulty they have balancing it with their careers. Um, you know, Malcolm X, obviously, it was a, a key civil rights leader. Muhammad Ali is this big athlete. Jim Brown, also a professional football player, and Sam Cooke, uh, this famous singer. And it's the the perspectives that come into play and the conversations that happen between these four are just so uh, riveting and just the way it, stuff like this is still relevant today. And um, in many ways, it's it's frustrating. Um, and hearing these conversations, it's, uh, you know, it just goes to show you just like how much work still needs to be done, you know, in, as far as uh, continuing diversity and fighting against racism and uh, all the performances um, from the actors uh, in this movie are award-worthy. Kingsley Ben-Adir as Malcolm X, uh, Eli Gorey as Cassius Clay, uh, Muhammad Ali, Aldous Hodge as Jim Brown, and Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke. So if, if you haven't taken the time to watch this yet, uh, this is bound to be a big awards player at the Oscars. It's already been nominated for a bunch of Golden Globes and, uh, and other assorted awards, so make sure you check that out uh, on Amazon Prime. Cool. What else, Brad? Um, you mentioned Ava DuVernay earlier, so I will drop a... This is you know more of a, an easy answer uh, I guess you could say, um, but it's one of the best depictions of the civil rights movement involving Martin Luther King Jr., uh, and that's Selma. Uh, it's directed by Ava DuVernay, has a phenomenal performance by David Oyelowo as Martin Luther King Jr., and an incredible ensemble cast behind him, too. That includes uh, Tessa Thompson, Tim Roth, Common, Oprah Winfrey, Lakeith Stanfield, Cuba King Jr., uh, just tons of people, and it's this uh, chronicle of the the famous march in 1965 um, that you know was a, a a key moment in in the history of fighting for uh, civil rights for the black population and so it's just it's one of those movies where you you hope the kids are shown it you know in in high school and that it serves as you know a pillar in educating uh, people about you know this this important moment in history absolutely and then, and then on the more uh, lighthearted side I guess you could say. Uh, is this documentary called Good Hair uh, from Chris Rock. And so uh, this came out back in 2009. Um, and it's a, a movie about uh, the culture and industry that surrounds black hairstyles. Uh, Chris Rock was inspired to do this movie after his three-year-old daughter asked him, uh, Daddy, how come I don't have good hair? And he realized that even at such a young age, this stigma of black people, especially black women, and their hair being perceived uh, as ugly and not beautiful was a big problem. And so he dives into uh, the black hair industry, which apparently is a, an over $9 billion industry. And he talks to people that work in beauty salons and barber shops and participate in hairstyling conventions and has these candid conversations with like salon customers about their perceptions about uh, black hair and all the different details and, and things that a lot of people, you know, if you're if you're not black, you probably don't understand um, about, you know, the, the perspective that there is there. You know, talk about things like chemical relaxers and weaves and things like this. And it's just a, an eye-opening, fascinating 
charming and really funny documentary. And he, uh, Chris Rock talks to people like Ice T and Maya Angelou, uh, Carrie Washington, uh, and and people of that sort to to get you know a, a wider perspective on the issue too. And it's just um, it's very fun, very uh, educational too, and just uh, yeah, something something worth seeking out. That's great. I've never heard of that one. It, it, uh, hearing you talk about it reminded me of uh, Hair Love, which was the 2019 animated short film that was written and directed by Matthew A. Cherry. That's on YouTube right now. So um, it sort of touches on similar <laughs> con- uh, subject matter a little bit. So if people want to check that one out, um, they could do that too. So uh, good and hair. I'll have to add that to my it's list. It's on uh, Netflix right now, or at least it should be. Oh, great. Okay. Um, Jacob, let's go to you. I'll throw out two very obvious ones. Uh, Moonlight, which won Best Picture famously, and Get Out, the horror movie that everybody saw that won screenplay for best, uh, the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. I think both are phenomenal films. Barry Jenkins and Jordan Peele are uh, incredible directors who uh, have showcased themselves to have range and this and this so much skill that goes beyond you know telling quote unquote black stories. But get both of them are such in our films that are very much about you know black lives, but also uh, one is a doomed tragedy romance and the other is a extremely exciting crowd losing horror movie. And I think they're both so smart in how they integrate, you know, stuff that's passionate to them about real life stuff, but also <laughs> into stories that they can move anyone. So that's uh, Moonlight and Get Out. I'll mention two other quick ones that aren't quite as famous. Um, I really like Love and Basketball, which is a film uh, from writer-director Gina Prince-Bythewood, who just did The Old Guard for Netflix. And this is a 2000 romantic comedy slash romantic drama comedy. Uh, I wouldn't say rom drom com whatever yeah yeah <laughs> about uh a relationship between uh two a man and a woman who both pursue careers in basketball and their years you know uh together and how they drift apart and drift together over the course of playing basketball and it is a genuinely charming l- lovely moving um romantic drama ht you've seen this you had to have seen this right I haven't seen this. <laughs> okay, that's your homework. Uh, Love and Basketball. It's very, very good. Uh, one more I'll recommend is Badass, and that's spelled B-A-A-D-A-S-S-S-S-S, exclamation point. This is a 2003 film from director Mario Van Peebles, you know, who also stars in it. And uh, Mario Van Peebles' father, Melvin Van Peebles, was a filmmaker in the 70s, and he made a movie called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, uh, which was one of the... Uh, forerunners of the black exploitation genre it proved that black filmmakers and black films could be financially viable and badass is a biopic where uh mario and peoples plays his father and and follows him trying to make his movie and it is a, an incredibly if you love you know let's put on a show style filmmaking movies or if you liked um my name is dolomite uh badass did it first and did it um in, in a way that feels very honest and raw and i really like badass i'm not sure where it's streaming but is one of the first movies that popped in my head when I saw this question. You should definitely seek it out. Okay. Uh, HD, let's go to you. So my first one is uh, also kind of a cheat. It's a series of movies, uh, and that's Steve McQueen's Small Acts, or whether you want to call it a series of movies, a TV series, who cares? Uh, They're all great. I particularly recommend Mangrove and Lover's Rock. I've spoken about them extensively in past water coolers and and Slash from Dailies, but uh, they are such a wonderful and... um, intimate insight into the lives and uh, tribulations of people living in the West London community and um, West 
yeah, West London community in uh, the like sixties to the eighties. And um, I was, I think this uh, mangrove is particularly strong for its uh, depiction of a, a court case that in other hands um, would go to, deeply and dig too deeply into the trauma and the black pain of it all. But what I really love about Mangrove and all the other films is that they also highlight black joy and love. And it feels like there's a, a balance there versus being about strictly black trauma, which is something that uh, has been a source of criticism for a lot of black led or black focused um, films. Uh, in recent conversations, uh, people will, will, a lot of, um, black audiences and critics will say that like the movies that generally get a lot of awards traction generally just focus on black trauma and that's something that feels uh not fully like co comprehensive uh portrait of the black experience so i highly recommend the steve mcqueen's small acts series for that and um yeah, especially mangrove and lovers rock in particular those are really really excellent films um uh, yeah that's something that we didn't really talk about during that whole stretch where we were talking a lot about small acts on the podcast but i think you're right and i think it, it sort of feels like um the small acts uh saga if you will is is like steve mcqueen almost in, in a way like answering for 12 years a slave which won best picture and was you know maybe like the the foremost well-known example of a movie you know being uh earning awards attention for exactly those types of narrative tropes that you were just talking about and this it's really like striking thinking about that movie and then watching small acts and seeing like how tonally different and and you know uh how much more um yeah tonally diverse uh those two things are so yeah i agree um, i do think it's it feels like it's him responding to maybe the criticisms criticisms he had or maybe uh being able to actually cover these kinds of stories where he wasn't allowed to um as or not allowed to where he was limited to before as a an emerging filmmaker mm -hmm. all right what else hd uh next is blind spotting so this is not directed by a black director but um it's directed by carlos lopez estrada uh and it's co-written by david diggs and rafael casal who star in it uh as a pair of best friends who live in oakland california david diggs plays a an ex-con who is on probation and um is in the last night of his probation before he is able to uh, walk a free man, essentially. And in that night, he sees a, a police officer shoot a, um, a black man, an unarmed black man in the streets. And uh, he, the movie follows him and his friend um, throughout the night uh, and kind of tackles issues of gentrification as well as the very tangled and naughty relationships between um, black and non-black um friends and how and that kind of difference in privilege and um experience that they can have and uh how it's it's a really really fantastic uh film with a, just a dynamite performance from david diggs uh i know this is one of your favorite films ben and um mm -hmm. you stole a bunch of the films that i was gonna say so sorry <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah blind spotting is just a really really fantastic movie and i highly recommend it Wholesale. And then you got one more, right? Yes. This was one that isn't quite like a powerful depiction of the Black experience, but I kind of, I just thought of it as uh, I saw Jacob's answer and also as I was look, thinking of answers for our next mailbag question. So it's almost more related to our next mailbag question, but it's Black Dynamite, which is a um, 
black exploitation parody uh, from 2009 that stars Michael J. White as a kung fu fighter who wages a war against the uh, people selling drugs at the community. <laughs> and uh, it's set in the 70s. I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I think about it every now and then, in particular, just like one single line where uh, Black Dynamite, Michael J. White's character, uh, says, I'm here to wage war on people selling drugs in the community. And someone says, but Black Dynamite, I'm selling drugs in the community. And it's a very silly movie, but um, and I don't have as much of a cogent um, uh, analysis of the Black Spartation movement as Jacob just did, but I think it's really funny and a great movie. Okay. Uh, all right. So our, our final uh, topic of the day, um, uh, Twitter user Lando Rocks asked us to define what constitutes a cult classic and list some of our favorites. So this is kind of a, a tougher question because I feel like the term cult classic gets thrown around a lot and sort of has uh, a nebulous definition depending on what sort of context you're using it, using it in. But I, I just wanted to open the floor to you guys and see if you guys had any um, maybe succinct uh, potential definitions, um, a, a way to sort of put some parameters around this. I have uh, one. Oh, Chris, uh, you, go, you go ahead. No, you go ahead, Jacob. I don't want to. I think that there people try to uh, really box in the definition of a cult classic. Everyone has their own reading on what it means. Uh, I think that ultimately the important thing about cult classic is something that was not appreciated at its time, was forgotten, swept under the rug, or mocked or ignored, uh, it came back to life and found a following in the years after. That, to me, is how you, the best definition for a cult classic. And it's a big enough umbrella to fit all kinds of movies. Uh, Chris, did your uh, definition differ from that one at all? I'm yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much what I was going to say. I was basically going to say a, a cult classic, in my eyes, is anything that failed to you know break even at the box office, something that did... Uh, poorly or just okay, the box office that has developed a very vocal, even fanatical following over the years. People, people are willing to to go to bat for it, even if everyone else thinks it's a failure. That's that's how I pretty much construe a cult classic. Yeah, both of those definitions are really good. I think mine was maybe a little bit more. Um, I don't know, not as good as as either of those. Frankly, my my like sort of catch all definition for this is like. Uh, anything that you sort of tell people about with a conspiratorial tone, it's like you, you kind of like in hushed tones, like pull somebody over and say like, Hey, have you heard about this? Like, I have to, I have to share this thing with you that I, it, it sort of feels like when you're watching uh, a cult classic that, um, only you and like a select few group of people like know about it. It almost feels like a movie that, that shouldn't exist uh, otherwise. Um, and definitely something that would not connect in, in the same way as like a mainstream thing. So um, I guess that's sort of like part of the <laughs> part of the definition of the term itself. So um, I don't know, Brad, H.A., do you guys have any, any other uh, maybe additional pieces of, uh, of bumpers that we can pop up, put up around this idea? I think you guys you know, covered it covered it pretty well. Yeah, I do wonder though, and this is not really pertaining to the question, but I wonder personally whether a film like becomes such a cult classic uh, that it beca- that it reaches like that mainstream popularity, whether that revokes its po- cult classic label. I wonder if there's like a way of something becoming so popular that it's no longer a cult classic. But I, I that's do probably think a whole that, other discussion. I do think that's true. There are some films that maybe were once cult classics, but I feel like they're not anymore. And, you know, but that's, I also feel like that's like splitting hairs, I guess. I don't know, but I do think that's, that's a good point. 
yeah, some of my uh, choices might actually fall under that <laughs> that uh, sub-definition, I guess. Um, so just the three that I had off the top of my head were uh, MacGruber, which came out in 2010, um, is, a direct, is directed by uh, Yormak Takoni uh, of the uh, Lonely Island, and um, is basically just a parody of uh, 1980s action movies, just super over-the-top, uh, ridiculous uh, kind of... <laughs> Like the, you know, uh, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, like all of that kind of era being sent up um, in wrapped up in this package of a, a Saturday Night Live sketch character, um, which it really feels like much different than the SNL sketches on which it's sort of based. It's it's really like just an excuse to drop that character into a much bigger uh, scope of a movie. But um, MacGruber is a film that like famously performed really, really terribly at the box office and has, uh, as Chris mentioned, uh, grown the sort of like fanatical uh, fan base uh, in the years since. So that would be one for me. Um, sort of same thing with What Hot American Summer, which came out in 2001, is directed by David Wayne. Um, I talked about that on, on previous editions of the show, so I'm not going to go deep on that. Everybody probably knows what this is by now, especially since Netflix has given it a prequel series and a sequel series set, you know, 10 years, I think, before and after <laughs> the events of that original film um uh and then um what else oh donnie darko is, is one that I, I don't i don't really love this movie but i feel like it's a great example of what we're talking about here where it's like a movie that is so uh, sort of odd and and strange and uh inspired especially when it came out in 2001 and the internet was sort of in its early infancy uh so many people like creating fan theories and like trying to dissect the movie and like stuff that has become the um you know the the frankly the the dominant way that we engage with culture now um people were doing that with this small little indie film in 2001 um and uh it's like tough to parse on first viewing so that gives it this like edge of mystique it, it sort of feels important and it's dealing with these really heavy themes and um you know it's it's a movie that sort of like uh loner people um probably latched onto a little bit more than you know just like oh i like i don't think my mom would know what donnie darko is for example so maybe that has uh just like the existence of a certain project maybe that uh, factors into the cult classicness of it at all too so um those are my choices but uh jacob it seems like you have some thoughts on this too yeah, I'm going to go through a few of them. Uh, two different camps, I think, of uh, older movies that, are, that just emerged out of nowhere years later. People say, what is this? And became uh, had a following. And movies that were major releases that bombed. And were and like years later, people found them, uh, usually on VHS, and said, oh, this is actually good. So I'll start with a movie called Star Crash, which is a Italian-produced uh, late 70s ripoff of Star, of Star Wars. Except the filmmakers had not seen Star Wars when they started making it. They only read the Star Wars novelization. Uh, so it is a ripoff of Star Wars for people who have not seen Star Wars. And Christopher Plummer plays the evil, uh, plays the emperor. And I, think, I can't remember if he's evil or not. The movie's very confusing. Uh, but a very embarrassed Christopher Plummer. Um, a lot of Italians screaming and being dubbed. Uh, it is magical. It is a magically bad movie. And I've seen this twice in theaters with people who are quoting along with it because it's, it's a very much a case of a movie... Uh, whose insane charms need to, see, need to be seen to be believed. That's Star Crash. Um, another one from that uh, similar camp of forgotten movies that have found audiences, A Miami Connection, a 1987 uh, martial arts musical about a rock band who's who are also a karate team who fight um, evil ninja bikers. And it is made so earnestly, and the musical numbers and the dramatic scenes are 
so campy but played with such honesty that I have a hard time even like mocking it. It, it feels like it was made by people who genuinely believed in what they were making, which is uh, a movie about friendship and brotherhood, but also ninjas, karate, and heads being chopped off with gushing blood geysers. Chris, you've seen Miami Connection. I'm assuming you have to, right? Oh, I have. It's it's so much fun, and everything you just said is spot on. It's such. It's it's all in such good natured fun that even though it's like an inept movie, like you can, like I'm pretty sure it was shot on the weekends over a period of years, and you can tell like haircuts change and stuff like that. Like you, you can see every flaw in this movie, but everyone is trying so hard to make this like fun movie about a rock band who are ninjas that you can't, you can't help but be like, I love this. I'm, I'm having such a good time watching this. It's, it, it's a delight. Yeah. And that was restored and re-released in 2012. It, it's, it's, it screened regularly in Austin for years after the restoration. So I've seen it multiple times with multiple audiences and it's, it is the definition of an old school cult classic, you know, rediscovered. Uh, the other category I'll, I'll talk about, which is big Hollywood releases that bombed and found an audience later. Uh, Clue. The 1985 adaptation of the board game starring Tim Curry. Uh, famously not a hit, famously critically derided. But now you can go to movie theaters to have like quota long screenings of it. Uh, I watched a VHS tape endlessly as a kid. I revisited on Amazon a few weeks ago and it's great. It's sort of this you know 1980s update on classic screwball comedies. It's very absurd, very silly, and it's the only board game movie worth <laughs> worth a damn. It's a genuinely a terrific comedy. Uh, I think we're a pro clue podcast uh, already, so I won't dwell on it, but it's great. Uh, the other one, uh, Dark Man, a Sam Raimi movie that kind of came and went in the 90s. Uh, Liam Neeson is essentially a superhero character. Uh, Sam Raimi made this because he couldn't get the rights to the shadow. And this is the sort of low budget or lower budgeted grimy R-rated riff on Spider-Man you didn't want. Like, it's the exact same tone, exact same pace, exact same, like, style of filming as a 2002 Spider-Man movie, except that it stars Liam Neeson, uh, features pretty extreme gore, <laughs> nobody saw it in the 90s, but it now has a very passionate following. Are we a dark? Are we a pro-Darkman podcast? I need to hear from the other folks about this one. Yes. Yeah, it's been so long since I've seen this. I need to revisit it. I think I probably watched it in, like, you know, 2002 or something and have not seen it since. Dark Man rules. Uh, everything about it is great. That Danny Elfman soundtrack fucking kicks ass. I love Dark Man. Everyone go watch Dark Man right now. <laughs> I'm going to do one more. This is a unique one. This is a film called The Astrologer of 1976. Not, not, not 1975 Astrologer, 1976 The Astrologer. And this is a movie that the American uh, Genre Film Archive found like, literally in a pile of abandoned prints. Watched it and said, what is this movie? And restored it. And I saw it at, I saw it at a film festival. And then um, I saw it again in, when, when it was screened in Austin. I brought more people. I saw it again. I brought more people. And at my bachelor party, a uh, friend brought a copy and surprise screened it for everybody at the bachelor party. Um, and the reason for this is because The Astrologer is this absolutely bonkers movie about a con man who's actually psychic um, and his rise and fall, this Forrest Gumpian rise and fall from working at a carnival to being the most popular, influential man on earth and back again. Uh, because of song rights, because of the filmmaker who also, Craig Denny, who stars in it and directed it, he illegally uses a bunch of Moody Blues songs constantly. <laughs> so it can never be properly released. You can never find it on um, Blu-ray or DVD. Uh, it can be screened um, in, uh, under certain circumstances with, with permission from the American Genre Film Archive um, for like non-profit purposes. 
um, but it can, it'll never be released. However, now it's been restored. You can find it. And this is the one time I'll, I'll seek you. I'll tell you to seek out and encourage you to find the astrologer from other means because they literally cannot release it, but it will change your life. Wow, uh, man, I've never heard of this one and uh, it sounds like I need to. So that's great. I'll add that to my list. Uh, Chris, let's go to you. Uh, I just want to get this one out of the way. And I know this will be a controversial pick because it's new and, and new things really can't technically be called classics, but I, I'm calling it right now. And I'm going to say that Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar is, is destined to be a cult classic. It's destined to be a movie that people discover streaming like a few years from now. And they're like, what the hell is this? Why did no one tell me about this? And I'm, and I, we're telling you here right now, we've already talked about this a bunch of times, so I won't go into it much more. Um, beyond that, anything from John Waters, anything from David Lynch, no matter how bad one of their movies might be, there is going to be someone who's going to be like, no, you don't understand. This is a masterpiece. So literally anything either of those filmmakers makes classifies here. And uh, I, I would agree. Like, even if I'm watching it and it's like not that great, like the Dune movie that David Lynch made. I was that's about a, to interject, uh, Chris. I like the David Lynch Dune. See, exactly. Like, that's not a good movie, but you're going to find people who are going to be like, this is fucking cool because they, those are just two unique filmmakers who, who operate on the fringes. They don't operate like anyone else. And so even their, their weaker efforts are just unique and fascinating and worth watching. So uh, those, those two directors, um, these two films, I think they, they should like go hand in hand. There should be like a double feature of them. And if there is, you're going to need to block out like 10 hours of time because they're both way too long. And that's uh, Under the Silver Lake and Southland Tales. Under the Silver Lake is from the director of um, It Follows. And um, it's just this weird, bloated epic about Los Angeles. And I don't even know what it's about. It's just, <laughs> it's just a very strange <laughs> film. And then Southland Tales is uh, uh, Richard Kelly's follow-up to Donnie Darko. And this had this infamous screening at Cannes where like everyone just booted off the screen and they were like, what is this goddamn disaster? And um, it, it recently got a new release from Arrow Video, the, the Cannes cut. And uh, I watched it and I actually wrote about it for SlashLum.com. But uh, that's, it's, it's like the, the Cannes cut doesn't make the movie better. But again, it's so interesting in its choices. It's about It's like this post-apocalyptic... <sighs> satire of like the Bush era. I don't even know. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a mess. It's a messy movie, but again, uh, give me a fascinating mess over like a boring success any day. Like, you know, I would rather watch a movie that fails, but fails interestingly than a movie that does what it's supposed to do, but doesn't really like do anything interesting. Like I, I want something mm -hmm. unique. Um, and yeah. speak, speaking of New York, uh, a cure for wellness. This is like a <laughs> almost three hour horror mystery from Gore Verbinski. Gore Verbinski has clout to do whatever the hell he wants because of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Those movies made billions of dollars. So he has the clout to just be like, I want to make this really weird movie about water eels that go into people's bloodstreams and a secret castle and incest and lizard people. And that that's all in this movie. And it's fucking so good. I love a cure for wellness. Like not even like ironically, I just love, I think it's just a great movie and it bombed. No one liked it. Uh, but I, I do think it has a pretty vocal following another movie, uh, Miami vice, the Michael Mann movie. This wasn't exactly a bomb. It did 
okay. But the general consensus around this movie seems to be like, oh, that sucks. It's not a good movie. And I'm here to tell you you're wrong. Miami Vice is an excellent movie. It's it's just moody and melodramatic, and it has just gorgeous, weird vibe to it. And uh, I love Miami Vice. And then finally, Roadhouse, the Patrick Swayze classic where he is the world's best bouncer. He's such a good bouncer that people come from around the land to recruit him to become their bouncer. And he has like a philosophy doctorate, but he... <laughs> <laughs> but he beats people up and he does like naked Tai Chi and uh, Sam Elliott is in it. It's it's so fucking good. I love Roadhouse with like every fiber of my being. I will never get sick of watching the movie Roadhouse where uh, the, the whole movie they keep talking about how Patrick Swayze can like rip a man's throat out and then he does it. And that was like stolen and the, like the McGruber plays off of that. Like pretty much anytime you see a comedy that's parodying action movies. They're, they're pretty much just like jumping off of the weird vibes from roadhouse. So God bless you roadhouse. I forgot that you have such a fondness for this movie, Chris. I feel like you talked about it several years ago, but I have not really brought it up since. And I'm, I'm just like endlessly amused by your like undying love for it's, roadhouse. It's, it's so much fun. Oh my God. It's just amazing. Like oh. it's, it's like, I, I, they don't they don't make them like that anymore. Really, they really, they really don't. Yeah. Okay, Brad, let's go to you. Uh, so I'll start off with uh, Clerks, Kevin Smith's directorial debut that uh, is probably very well known by now. Um, you know, it ended up kicking off what was became his whole viewers universe, uh, even before Marvel had their own movie universe, and uh, it was a Sundance. Um, selection that became this little indie darling but it was uh you know not a huge hit at the box office and it's this little black and white comedy that was made on a shoestring budget and it it really does have just the spirit of what independent movies are and it's uh it's raw it's uh funny it's irreverent and it's a a good reminder that kevin smith used to be a a lot better of a, a filmmaker when he was younger not that i think that he's terrible now necessarily he's just he's lost something i think that he had when he was younger. And maybe it's also me, you know, growing up too, and not necessarily being as, uh, you know, enthralled with the more immature side of his comedy and all of the, the endless pop culture references they have. But uh, I do think Clerks is, is one of those, um, those great cult classics that really taps into, um, you know, uh, a, a great low key comedy and like the kind of movies that, that rise up and really uh, capture an audience's imagination and get you to be excited about a filmmaker's work. You know, even if you followed it with, Mallrats, which is deemed disappointing, he still came chasing Amy and Dogma and Jane and Silent Bob Strike Back, and those are all movies that um, will I'll always have a, a soft spot in my my heart for. Yeah, Brad, it's not surprising at all that all of the entries on, on all of your entries on this list are comedies. So, what is the next one? For sure, yeah, this is a more recent one. Uh, Pop star, never stop, never stopping. Man, uh, this is one of the best theatrical experiences that I've ever had. Um, I, I got to see it at an early screening at the Alamo Draft House in Kalamazoo, Michigan, when it was still open. And this movie just had me rolling uh, in my seat. It's just absolutely hilarious. It just much like MacGruber, it bombed at the box office. It's from the, the Lonely Island guys, uh, Andy Samberg, Yorma Taconi, and Akiva Schaefer. And it's uh, and it, in its most basic form, it's, it's essentially a parody of like 
the the rock pop music documentary, especially uh, Justin Bieber's documentary. Um, and it follows this, you know, uh, hip hop artist named Connor For Real, played by Andy Samberg, as he's his career takes a downfall. He realizes, you know, um, how much he's sold out and how his career is just taken uh, a complete nosedive. And it is full of tons of huge, famous musician, celebrity cameos, just laugh out loud, gut bustingly hilarious and has tons of original songs by the lonely Island that are equally as funny uh, as everything else in the movie. So if you somehow haven't heard all of the acclaim for this movie that came from the critics who, who loved it, uh, please like just, just seek this out. Oh my gosh. It's just, this movie's phenomenal. <laughs> um, and then on, along the lines of a movie that movies that we talked about earlier, where maybe they wouldn't be considered cult classics anymore, uh, office space because uh, this is a movie that wasn't a huge hit at the box office either but it has since become such a huge part um, of pop culture to the point where they they, they sell red staple swing line staplers now because of this movie uh, and there are so many quotes that have um, you know entered our, our zeitgeist and are now just part of uh, popular culture that um, because of how you know re- uh, revered this movie has become among audiences once they realize how you know depressingly accurate this movie depicts life in a cubicle in in an office setting um and just the the kinds of characters you encounter from your coworkers to your boss uh and so yeah this it's one of those where it's it's not, I, you could say maybe it's not a cult classic anymore but it definitely was uh when it first um came out and the audience just grew exponentially over time because of that uh and then finally another more recent entry and this uh, kind of piggybacks on your what hot american summer love uh, and that's They Came Together, um, which is uh, in a similar vein, a, a spoof of romantic comedies like uh, You've Got Mail and When Harry Met Sally. Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler star in this movie. It has a huge ensemble cast. Um, it's from uh, David Wayne and Michael Showalter. And it is a, a classic style parody in the vein of Airplane or Young Frankenstein or The Naked Gun uh, that just hits all of the tropes of romantic comedies, especially the ones set in New York. It is goofy. It is ridiculous. Um, it's just, it, and it's, it makes fun of these movies while also having a love for them, which is what a great parody should do. And so uh, this was one that definitely flew under the radar. And I have, I've encountered way too many people who like haven't seen or even heard of this movie. And if you're one of them and you love people like Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd, I, I implore you to to seek this one out as well, because um, this was another movie that I saw at Sundance where I just, I could not control how hard I was laughing uh, in theaters. It's, it's that good. You can say that again. <laughs> uh, okay. You'll, you'll get that if you watch the movie. All right. And then HT, let's go to you. So my choices are generally choices that you would expect with this kind of list, which is why I was kind of asking, oh, I wonder if at some point movies become like revoke, get revoked, get their title of cult classic revoked. Um, but because I heard of uh, at least um, the first movie I'm going to speak about because it's a cult classic, and that's the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which uh, is a 1970 uh, musical comedy horror movie directed by um, – Jim Sharman stars Tim Curry, who could probably make a whole career out of being in cult classics and has probably already done so because he's just phenomenal in every movie he's in. And uh, this is a movie that I watched first time um, in college at one of those midnight screenings where you uh, bring you you sing along you sing along to the to the thing and they give you like lyrics and people dress up. So it definitely is almost known more as being cult classic than maybe people have even seen it. So it's, um, but I, I still really enjoy it. Even if it's a film that uh, as a, 
satire of like B horror movies does fall apart in the last half and like completely loses the plot, but it's so fun. The music is so good. Um, Tim Curry is just, you know, uh, strap, uh, just striding around and swanning around, having a great time. And, uh, yeah, I, I honestly, I love this movie and watch it every Halloween and uh, really adore it. So that's the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And next one is also one that I don't know if you would call it a cult classic because it's so ingrained in the pop culture landscape. And that's uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, But it's one I think that deserves a title because it does have such a fanatical following and um, has and even though it's spawned like a musical, which is now becoming a film, for example, I do know that it had received mixed reviews when it first came out um, and uh, was less well received until it it just kind of grew in in following and is now like frequently quoted um, and always just re- referred to as like some of the best comedies of the 20th century. But um, it's, yeah, it's hilarious. I, I watched this for the first time when I was young at the sleepover. I feel like a lot of like cult classics for me are just movies that I watched late night at a sleepover. No one is, everyone is just like half groggy no one or or movies you watch high i don't know but <laughs> uh yeah Mo- monty python the holy grail is just is so so funny i i just um I, I don't think i can speak as much to like why the comedy and like why this absurdist comedy works so well but it's just uh it's a really a perfect cult classic i think and uh even the the musical which i also saw spam a lot is fantastic as well so um yeah that's my second choice uh Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And lastly is another one that is more of like a personal cult classic to me and also one that I feel like is kind of shaky in the definition because um, it's just Stephen Chow's movies in general. He's the director and star of films like Kung Fu Hustle and Shaolin Soccer. And as far as I know, he's a fairly successful box office star in China, but his films, I would say, are are lesser known in the U.S. And I kind of came across them almost by accident. I would watch them when my friend, my cousins and I were like a, in a Kung Fu movie phase as kids. And uh, we were just like, what are these movies? It's basically just these really broad, really absurd comedies that play like um, martial arts movies as Looney Tunes cartoons. Uh, it's over the top. It's hammy. It's weird. It's just a, a just a complete joy to watch. And um, I highly recommend specifically Kung Fu Hustle, and which is which follows Stephen Chow as an aspiring gangster as he gets caught between um, this feud between a murderous gang and a small scrappy village that's full of martial arts masters and uh, Shaolin Soccer, which is about. Stephen Chow as a Shaolin monk who basically forms this super team of other uh, Shaolin martial arts fighters to to um, become a soccer team. It's great. The trailer for Shaolin soccer blew my mind when I saw that when I was in high school. It was unreal. It's yeah, they're they are really really funny and they still hold up. I would say um, so. Those are those are my maybe cult classic. All right. So hopefully we were able to uh, give people a a long runway there of of films to check out if they haven't seen them before. Um, Yeah. So I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. This podcast is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns 
and additional mailbag topics to us at peter at slashhome.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.